3: So rates for what's being called directors and officers insurance, uh, they've skyrocketed because there's been a surge in lawsuits by plaintiffs seeking to sue as a group. Now, the latest surge in lawsuits coming as a response to the coronavirus outbreak and how companies may have bungled it in certain cases, according to these plaintiffs. But interestingly, Elon Musk, never one to shy away from <laughs> making a gesture, said in April he was dropping the insurance policy that protects Tesla's board from shareholder lawsuits. It doesn't mean they wouldn't be insured. It meant that he would pay out of his own pocket. It's a fantastic story today brought to us by Jeff Feely and Catherine Chiglinski of Bloomberg News. And let's bring them in now. Jeff, why would Elon Musk have put himself on the line like this? Not that he doesn't have enough money, but I mean, these are potentially multi-million, even more lawsuits.
4: Elon is Elon, (laughs) is what I want to say to start off. Uh, Also, I mean, you're talking about an average 44% increase over the last two years of this kind of insurance. It's starting to get a bit out of hand, and the insurance company is. Insurance companies are citing a jump in the numbers of security suits, and then of course the COVID thing. Both of which are legitimate reasons. But I mean, 44% in a two-year period—that's a that's a pretty big bump. And you know, I mean, companies are looking to conserve resources given the economic body blows that the pandemic has caused so elon sees this as a way of saving money
2: so kat i want to bring you in here you cover all things on the insurance side on this dno or uh, directors and officers insurance market here what does it typically cover what kind of protections does it typically give a board member
5: Yeah, so it gives them a lot of liability protection in case they're sued. Um, And often, you know, we see it occur when some shareholder files a suit that alleges, you know, they've been hurt because of a stock drop, which kind of makes this a really interesting time period for the market. um, Because, you know, while we did see sort of the stock market crash in a bit of the first quarter, especially in March, it was a broad-based decline. So I think that's going to make a lot of these claims a little more intriguing, because whether you can prove the cause, whether you were hurt by um, this broad market, or if it was just something that really affected a bunch of companies at once, I think it's going to be kind of an interesting uh, tension we'll see in these lawsuits.
3: Well, just on that particular question as well, I mean, there are some companies for whom that's more of a problem than others, and Tesla might be one of them, considering we saw its share price go above $1,000 last week. And Elon himself has run-ins with regulators from time to time, given his his ramblings on Twitter sometimes, and, and they can move stocks. So, is he really putting himself on the line? I mean, what's the worst case scenario for Elon Musk in this in this in this scene, Catherine?
5: Well, I would say, I mean, obviously, if there are lawsuits and they do prove quite um, successful against him, you know, he's got a lot on the line. And that's it becomes quite tricky in his case, because there are some conflicts of interest that people have raised. You know, the board members need to sort of make sure his wealth is there in a way to protect them. And um, and that's where, you know, insurance always gets kind of interesting. You know, that's why a lot of people turn to sort of the traditional insurers to buy it, because, They want, you know, someone who's very separate from the company and the board to insure them so that there's no conflict of interest. And and I think those were some of the concerns that, you know, experts we talked to raised is that Elon is going to have to fork over money if there is a loss. And, you know, he has obviously got a lot of ties to Tesla and the board, and uh, they're going to have to make sure that they can kind of keep things very independent.
2: Yeah, Jeff, I kind of want to follow up on that. If I were a board member at Tesla, I'm not sure I, – I, I'm, I'm sure I'm, a, I'm drinking the Elon Tesla, uh, Elon Musk uh, Kool-Aid, but I'm not sure I'd be comfortable not having that DNO insurance policy behind me. What's the sense of other companies out there? I mean, this is really unusual, isn't it?
4: It is. And given what uh, Elon Musk thinks about most journalists, I would not sit by the phone waiting for that call for your board appointment. But um, – <laughs> Um, the reality is that nobody else that we were able to find has done this. You know, we we poked around. J and J may have. They wouldn't comment on it. They have their own captive insurer. But here's the reality: we quote Skip McBride, who's a, a director at companies such as Blue Bell Ice Cream in Texas. He's an old DNO expert, marketing for Mark Lanier now, and we quote him as saying he would not join the Tesla board without cutting his own separate deal with Elon Musk that he would write that would leave him no wiggle room on covering litigation against Skip McBride. They may have done that. That may be the way that they have handled that. They, they did not disclose that, by the way, in their SEC filings. What they did disclose is that, the, that Elon's board had basically chewed over the idea of whether this left them in a conflict position when they found that it did not. So, you know, this is all one big gulag that you've got sort of swirling around <laughs> involving COVID. You have the insurance industry saying that they face potential losses of $480 billion, that's with a B, every month over Whoa. insurance claims, business interruption, other insurance claims, D&O, know 480000000000 a month.
3: It's really phenomenal, but I suppose, you know, I mean, if the prices have gone up that much, then I guess you do get to that number pretty quickly. What's the outlook for these coronavirus cases, yeah. Jeff? Well, I mean, here, it, you know, here, here, there's yeah, going to be and, so many of them.
4: Oh, yeah. Here's the deal. And you guys mentioned Tesla as being somebody who's at particular risk. I don't see them at particular risk. You know, we know in the story is at particular risk is Norwegian Cruise Line and mm. Princess Cruise Line and those guys have got already got at least a half dozen security suits against them saying not only did you bungle covid but in the in the example of norwegian you basically lied to people about you know how bad covid was to try to get them to keep their booking dates on the the cruises that goes before a jury and i don't even want to think of a number that gets attached in the verdict
2: (laughs) Jeff Feely, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff Feely is a legal reporter for uh, Bloomberg News uh, and Kat Chidlinski, finance reporter covering all things insurance for Bloomberg News as well with a fascinating story the two had out today. Elon Musk effectively self-insuring his board. I I just can't think of another example of that, Vani.
3: I mean, if you were counting on your CEO to insure you, Paul, would you argue with him?
2: Uh, No, I I don't think so. I mean, I just think the risk, particularly in this environment, are just uh, too great. And I think it's, you know, it's really too much really to ask uh, for a board member, I think, in this environment.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, captive insurance, trickier with DNO because of uh, conflicts of interest, as we say in the story. It's definitely well worth reading the whole story.
2: Absolutely. Great stuff coming out of Bloomberg News as always. But no matter what he does, those share prices go higher. It's Elon being Elon.
3: He runs one of the biggest public pension plans in the country, second to maybe only one other. Let's bring in now Chris Aylman, Chief Investment Officer at CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement System. Chris, welcome back.
6: Well, Vani, it's good to be back. We're number two in assets, but we're number one in everyone's heart.
3: <laughs> That's what I was hinting at there, Chris. Well, let's get straight to it then. Have you had to revise what you're assuming you're going to make in returns over the next several years?
6: Well, we haven't changed our long-term assumption because it's a 30-year average, Bonnie. But what we have done is reassessed, and the key word was when the Fed said interest rates are going to stay at zero through 2022, that's a powerful statement. And so uh, the next five years, will probably be lower returns, although the last time the Fed did that, we had double-digit returns for those five years. So risk assets may be uh, profitable during this time period. We have to get through the health crisis, but uh, I think that we're gonna see very low returns, obviously at a fixed income, corporate credit, uh, anything with uh, variable rates uh, that reset, but that means that equity investments and growth investments may have a chance to use that free money, that financing. So uh, Chris, your your counterparts
2: at CalPERS, uh, they were talking about needing to maybe eye more private equity Uh, to leverage uh, and maybe even more leverage to boost returns, i.e. making the portfolio uh, a little bit more riskier in order to generate uh, the returns that they need. How do you view that?
6: Yeah, Ben Ming's a a new CIO there. He's really taking a a comprehensive look at the portfolio. And and we're we're all seeing a a trend that the Canadians have used, some of the Dutch pension plans uh, and Danish pension plans have used which is to, you know, when, when interest rates are zero, uh, you borrow money and leverage and you in, go into growth assets. But I think there's a natural for a public pension, there's got to be a limit to that. And, and that's what everybody wants to explore. You want to use that lower cost money uh, as an opportunity to buy into things like real estate. Uh, private equity should take advantage of it, obviously, um, but also just across the portfolio. But there are natural limits. Uh, No one has defined that, but but probably not more than 20%, 30% leverage. Um, We have a leverage policy. We actually monitor that very closely. Uh, You you take leverage in real estate. Everybody buys their home with, what, 20% down, maybe 30% down. So they're leveraging over half. A public pension plan would be doing just the opposite, barely leveraging the portfolio Paul. Um, but it's, it's simply because the fact that the Fed has signaled rates are going to be so low for so long, um, that's very inexpensive money that, that allows you to invest in other places, but not until the health crisis is resolved.
3: And can I point out, Chris, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys would actually have been doing a little bit more of this than other retirement systems for a long time. You've always been a little more into real estate, a little riskier when it comes to venture and growth and even fund of funds and alternatives generally, right?
6: Well, Vani, spot on. You've known me for almost two decades, I think. (laughs) Um, we, We do tilt a little heavier toward real estate, Um, than most public pensions. uh, State of Washington, ourselves, Oregon, there's a lot of funds that have a fairly large allocation to private equity. Uh, At our fund, it's it's currently about 10 percent going to 13 percent, which is a big dollar amount. Um, And, you know, the returns in private equity are going to come down but they're going to be helped by this uh, lower money. And and the reason they're going to come down is simply competition. There's just too much money chasing too few deals. And and before the health crisis, private equity companies were paying top dollar for any kind of an investment, and that usually means lower returns going forward. So we're uh, still going to stay in the space, but uh, it's going to be uh, less of a return than you used to see in, say, the 90s or the 2000s. Uh, We think a broadly diversified portfolio is going to help you through this. Um, Growth investments, once we get out of the health crisis, uh, growth investments will be attractive to people. And that could be even in U.S. and non-U.S. stocks. Uh, You know, the world has had so many geopolitical challenges. Um, If Europe could get its act together, uh, Japan could finally start growing again. You've got some investment opportunities. Big if at the start of those. And again, I have to keep caveating we got to get through this health crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's paramount for everybody, I think, uh, you know, it goes without saying. But Chris, talk to me about your real estate holdings and what your view on real estate is right now, because I think that sort of has split people in two, right, as to what they are anticipating in terms of inflation, as to what they're anticipating in terms of how, you know, structurally life will change after this.
6: Good Good point, Vonnie. You know right now, real estate is fairly frozen. There are no transactions, so there's no price information to figure out where things are. Going into this, real estate was pretty much priced of perfection. Uh, the real estate our team was doing was more build uh, to core, as we describe it so so speculative building, but leasing up the property and making it a core holding. Most of the return in real estate comes out of uh, your lease income. It does not come out of capital appreciation as much as people focus on that. I think that will be true. And you're right. The dynamics of the typical downtown office building uh, are going to change. Um, this is the first time in my 40-year career I've been able to work from home. You know what? I like it. And <laughs> I know my staff. 80, 90 percent of my staff likes it. So I think we're we're still going to have to come back to the office.
3: They're all at your have home to
6: interact. <laughs> yeah. It, it It is amazing, you know, there, but there's less interaction. There's less dropping in in people's office and sharing ideas. We need that interaction, that, that creativity and the culture. There's no culture when you're working from a Zoom screen. So, uh, but I think we're going to see a new dynamic where, yes, a lot of people, at least a few days a week, maybe a week a month, work from home. Um, certainly the the young families love it because then they can be with their kids. But, uh I could tell you the people with teenagers are happy to eager to get back to the office. They they want to get out of the house. So it's a <laughs> it's a split. But you know, uh, the other part of real estate, uh apartments, uh industrial, um, all of those uh, wonderful Ama- Amazon fulfillment centers, uh those are still very profitable. There are sub segments in real estate such as uh uh the server centers where the internet has to be kind of housed or hubbed. Uh those are profitable. So you know, I think I've always liked industrial uh, because it's just uh, big and bold and, and not a lot of landscape, so you don't have to water it. As long as the trucks pull up, you're making money. Um, uh, retail is going to be challenged, obviously, yep. but people do want to go back to the mall. But we've been we've, in retail, we've been underweight, and we have been in a grocery-anchored kind of local chains right. and, and uh, centers for a long time.
2: Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, hearing your broad perspective. Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer for the California State Teachers Retirement System. They got a couple of dollars under management, about $239 billion based in Sacramento, uh, putting that money to work for all the good teachers from the state of California.
7: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
6: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Supreme Court has been busy here today. A divided U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal law protects gay and transgender workers from job discrimination in a decision that gives millions of LGBT people new civil rights. To get the latest on this, we welcome Greg Storr. He covers all things on the Supreme Court for us, Greg. So give us a sense of how important this decision is, Greg. Was it expected? What's your take?
0: It's hugely important. uh, More than half the U.S. states don't cover sexual orientation and gender identity through their own anti-discrimination laws. And what that meant was, in most of the country, it was perfectly legal for an employer to fire somebody because of his or her gender identity or sexual orientation. Now that can no longer happen, and it's a ruling that came out of a pretty conservative Supreme Court.
3: Yeah, isn't it phenomenal, Greg, because it's it's quite ironic that even though... We had that massive decision a few years ago in 2015 legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide that still people could have been fired from their jobs for the very same thing, for being gay.
0: Yeah, erotic is exactly the right word for it, and and it's something that uh, a lot of people did not know, but uh, that decision involving gay marriage was a constitutional decision. This was a matter of interpreting uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, That law says that you can't discriminate against somebody on the basis of sex, and the core question for the court in this case was a somewhat technical question, which is whether that word sex covers sexual orientation and gender identity. And the Supreme Court today said, yes, it does.
2: So it's interesting, Greg, I saw the conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch and Chief Justice John Roberts joined the courts for liberals in the 6-3 majority vote. How surprising was that to see those two conservative judges uh, vote this way?
0: Chief Justice was probably more surprising. A lot of us had watched Justice Gorsuch during the arguments, which were way back in October, um, and he suggested that he might actually read the statute this way. So there was at least the possibility after the argument uh, that he would join the liberals in the majority. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts did not suggest any such thing, and, and he had actually been in dissent in all the court's big gay rights decisions uh leading up to this moment uh so I'm not sure I would have guessed that he would have been there this was something that was certainly in the mix but again given the overall direction of the court, it's a court that has become more conservative since Donald Trump got to appoint two justices, including Gorsuch, Uh, you know, you have to say, uh, wow, it's it's quite a surprise to see this court issue this ruling.
3: Well, and in fact, it was actually a trio of cases they were considering, so the two gay rights cases, but also a very interesting case, a transgender rights case, it concerned a Michigan funeral home chain that fired Amy Stevens. She was preparing to start living openly as a, a woman, Tragically, though she she's died now, and the Supreme Court has come out with the decision just more than a month after she died.
0: Yes, uh, she, she did. Uh, she had had health problems for for a while. Um, you know, she she did get to see a federal appeals court rule in her favor, but of course, when the Supreme Court got involved that victory for her was was in jeopardy um, you know her name will certainly be remembered as uh someone who pushed this issue uh who insisted that she should be treated equally uh that she should not be discriminated against because she had decided to to begin living uh, openly a, a, as a woman uh but yes uh, tragic for her that she didn't live to see this day
2: It's interesting, Greg, Uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, uh, just came out applauding uh, the Supreme Court decision here. What's the general feeling of corporate America as it relates to uh, these types of rights, and and what do you think the response will be to this ruling?
0: I I think there will be a lot more of uh, of what you just heard from from Tim Cook. Uh, Corporate America was was generally on the side of expanding LGBT uh, rights, Uh, in part just a a calculated business decision that they want to see Clear rules, and now they know what the the rules are. Uh, They cannot discriminate. Uh, You know, and it's a nationwide rule. They don't have to worry about a patchwork uh, across the country. Uh, But there's also, you know, when you talk to to a lot of corporate leaders, they talk about how important it is for them to to maintain a diverse and welcoming workforce. Uh, And this is something that, uh, in their minds, will certainly uh, push us in that direction.
3: Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Just more broadly on the docket and what's left for the rest of the year and who will write the decisions Greg I know you've been keeping track
0: Well, I I wouldn't have guessed that Justice Gorsuch was going to write this decision, so I don't know who's going to write what going forward. Uh, One big one we're waiting for we should get uh, pretty soon is uh, whether President Trump can abolish the DACA deferred deportation program. Uh, That's obviously going to be very contentious. We're going to have uh, rulings on abortion, religious rights, and then probably near the very end of the term, rulings on those subpoenas by the House and a New York grand jury for President Trump's financial information. That will no doubt be one of the most politically divisive rulings of the term.
3: And just on which justices are left to write decisions at least?
0: Well, it, it could be uh, the way it works out. I would expect Chief Justice Roberts to write some of the big ones. Uh, the, the whole dynamic of who writes what depin- uh, opinion is it, dependent on the sitting in which the court uh, uh, issues its rulings. So at this point, it's a little hard to, to guess. Um, uh, I do think Chief Justice Roberts, a very good chance he will be the one writing the DACA decision. Beyond that, it's a little hard to, to speculate.
3: Mm. All right, well, it is uh, fascinating. We can keep an eye on all of your stories, particularly that seminal decision today from the Supreme mm, Court, which yeah, amazing uh, millions of LGBT people new civil rights.
2: Yeah, it's really, it's extraordinary. I wasn't aware that that many states uh, did not have that protections uh, at the state level. So obviously this is uh, a, a compelling uh, and exceptionally important uh, ruling here by the Supreme Court.
3: And it's always the incremental decision that makes change, right? Our thanks to Greg Storr, Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg.
2: It is time for a Bloomberg Opinion segment. Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion joins us. Max, you've got a great column out, and I love the, the title here, the headline, uh, To Fight COVID-19 This Fall, Get a Flu Shot. Well, talk to us about the flu shot. Do people actually get this thing? The, does it work? And how could it help in the, uh, you know, the pandemic-19 world?
8: Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're seeing with, with cases spiking in a number of U.S. states is pretty clear confirmation that the COVID-19 is, is going to be around in a significant way for some time to come, considering that you know many states never quite got it under control and um, have sort of proceeded with openings without necessarily having developed the, the sort of track tracing, isolating capabilities they, they need to keep incidents low over the long run. That means we'll have cases in the fall as, um, you know, you get the seasonal return of flu. And these are viruses, uh, diseases that can look similar, uh, both of which can, can land people in the hospital. And, um, you know, in combination, if you get a particularly severe flu season, you have the potential to, to further overwhelm uh, health care and hospital systems and create a lot of extra sort of confusion and fear um, from people that, that might think they have COVID but, but have flu and then uh, potentially, you know, uh, uh, go get tested, and just a lot, of, a lot more burden on, on testing and, and healthcare providers. So, um, you know, in, in terms of something that, that the federal government and state governments can do ahead of time, ahead of that that potential uh, result, is roll out to a greater extent um, a flu vaccination program. Try to get a, a higher proportion of the population vaccinated. And while the, the effectiveness of the flu vaccine can vary. Um, depending on the strain and, and to what extent vaccine developers get it right. I nearly always provide some degree of protection, and really ahead of the autumn, anything that we can get to reduce the burden is worthwhile.
3: So really, the argument, Max, has nothing to do with coronavirus itself. It's just this may help you not get flu, which will help the system in terms of not overwhelming hospitals or doctor's offices. And it may keep you away from coronavirus plagued areas as well, should they reemerge. What about the different strains of flu? What's the likelihood that this season's flu vaccine will work better than other seasons, if at all?
8: Um, you know, that, that's something that we won't know much about until until we the flu virus actually starts to circulate, but you know, uh, I think the the a couple extra things to add on, on why this effort is worthwhile. First is, you know, the flu will already have a harder time if people are taking some degree of distancing steps, masking, um, you know, using greater hygiene efforts, adding even, uh, um, you know, an average or, or less than average, uh, vaccine on top of that should lead to a much less acute season. And then that's worthwhile. On top of that, any effort to expand vaccination, um, get people connected with providers. Uh, create, you know, more accessible vaccination types, target the sorts of population that don't always get vaccinated, that can be reapplied, uh, reused in the future when we get a COVID vaccine, because, you know, it's not just getting to a vaccine, but but getting it um, in enough of a population that you can have that, that sort of broad protective effect, that's going to be a huge challenge. And anything we can do to build that infrastructure ahead of time while doing something else useful should should be very helpful.
2: So, Max, I know this is a, a very fluid uh, area here, but give us a sense of kind of where we are in terms of the vaccine. I know we've got many, many uh, groups, many companies, many research universities working towards it. Kind of give us just a 30,000-foot view of where we are right now.
8: Uh, still in, in very early stages. Uh, we, we just got some limited data from a uh, vaccine of China, Sinovac vaccine. Uh, and, you know, it, it looked, it's what you wanted to see, some degree of immune reaction uh, no severe safety events but as with Moderna pretty limited data disclosure um you know we're really there there's going to be sort of a low bar for moving into larger studies cuz we we want to try as many different vaccine approaches as possible it's going to be some time before we have a really solid sense of what's likely to succeed and and when and what what the most effective vaccines will be so still early days but but lots of progress being made
3: Now, we have openings in a lot of places, retail outlets in England selling non-essential items open today for the first time. Obviously, places like New York are beginning to reopen as well. But Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested bans on travel to the United States may remain until a vaccine arrives. How likely is that, Max?
8: Uh, You know, I think it depends on the situation going forward. And, and it, you know, some of those will be, you know, rel- directed at other countries, other countries that still have severe outbreaks. Other countries may be hesitant about letting people travel here, uh, just be considering that the virus continues to circulate at high rates. It, it all depends on the extent to which, um, you know, states take action to, to keep renewed outbreaks under control, uh, continue to, to do all of the many things governments can do independent of the vaccine. to to keep incidents low in the long run.
3: Well, I would urge everybody to keep up with Max's writings. He's writing a lot of Bloomberg opinion pieces on the actual infection.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Mani. And it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see here. There's t- a couple of paths here. We've got the path towards treatments of uh, the uh, illness as well as vaccines. And we know that, uh, again, healthcare companies, research universities, uh, doctors and scientists across the world uh, are working towards this. And, uh, you know, people are just kind of waiting, beta breath to see kind of how this progresses. And hopefully we can get a, a vaccine sooner rather than later.
3: Yeah, exactly. Thanks to Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist.